And no one's going to say, well, yeah, I screw it. I mean, everyone's going to murder people anyway, so why even bother? <laughs> yeah, so that's a little too libertarian for me. <laughs> <laughs> To the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, Liberty lovers, Liberty friends, Liberty curious. This is indeed the Lions of Liberty podcast, episode number 181. You can find the show notes for today's show over at lionsofliberty.com slash 181. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select, an incredible free market, affordable, legal alternative to your standard Obamacare corporatized insurance. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is a real estate investor and a writer whose work on business, economics, and many other topics has appeared on a variety of websites, including Mises.org, Antiwar.com, BiggerPockets.com, and REIClub.com. He is also the author of a couple books, including Economic Lies, Damned Lies, and Statistics. I am pleased to welcome in Mr. Andrew Sirios. Andrew, are you ready to roar? I am always ready to roar, although be more in a figurative sense. I'm not much of a literal roar, but well, we'll, we'll, well that's go. All, it's all good because we both roar metaphorically as well as literally here. So either and both are perfectly acceptable. As long as it's metaphorical, I'm, I'm all for it. All right. Fantastic. <laughs> well, Andrew, I think it's safe to say from uh, reading a lot of your writing here recently that uh, your political views don't exactly fall neatly into the left or right paradigm. So why don't you just start with that? How did your political views first begin to take shape? How did you first become immersed in the, the realm of politics and economics and all the stuff you're out there writing about? Well, I guess it's sort of a messy story. I started out probably pretty conservative. My my family's pretty conservative, but not particularly political. As I went through high school and college, you know, I'm from Eugene, Oregon, fairly liberal town. Shockingly, my views started to move further and further to the left. I'm not quite sure how that happened. And then I, a familiar story, I just kind of, Ron Paul's 2008 campaign came along and I started listening to speeches and talks he was giving and it just kind of hit me like whoa that's me that makes sense to me whereas that kind of political argument is something i really hadn't heard before that um pretty much it was just sort of basic mainstream leftism from in high school and college and well most of what was on television as well and then fox news of course but that's not exactly a libertarian outlet either so i'd say really just Seeing those arguments for the first time is almost like they found me versus me finding them. It's like, oh, that finally makes sense to me. That's just like, that's what I am. Whereas before that, you know, you have that index card like that Tom Woods talks about all the time of allowable opinion. And it's like, well, I got to fit somewhere on here. But it didn't really make sense to me, which is probably why I moved around so much. Uh, early on before just kind of finding a home on the libertarian side of things. Yeah, it's a similar tale that we hear often when discussing the liberty folks, I guess. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of us had that feeling that, well, this doesn't quite fit. And maybe we, even if we came from a progressive background or a conservative background, as you did, as I did, but things didn't quite feel right. But and so we didn't always necessarily cling to the Republican side or cling to the Democratic side. And it took somebody just maybe hearing some soundbite in a GOP debate of this guy going on a rant about something. And and you're, you're thinking, wait a minute, what's this guy talking about? I think he actually made sense for a second. Hold yeah, on. exactly. I think a lot of it was just being against the war, uh, being against the war in Iraq. And it's like, well, the left is against the war and the right is for the war. So I guess I must be on the left, even though a lot of the other things that they're saying sound like complete nonsense. 
but uh, I guess I have to fall on the left, right? And as you're finally hearing, like, no, you can be outside of that paradigm and be against the war, but still be for, you know, free markets and, and individual liberty. It just it hit home to me. And then you look back into history and you see, well, the left really hasn't been particularly good on war either. They were, we'll say, mediocre. That's even probably too kind on the Iraq war, but they've been pretty terrible in general. Yeah, it, it's funny how that works because we, we always, when we're growing up, we are told there's Democrats and there's Republicans, so we feel the need to squish ourselves into one side or the other until we get the point where we realize, wait, these are just kind of random beliefs that they, they jump together and put them on two different sides. There's no really consistency of philosophy on either side, and I think that's where a lot of people find themselves in limbo until they do actually find maybe their own philosophy and, and find that that philosophy might not even be attached to a political party per se. Yeah, some of it doesn't even make sense. I think it was uh, Nicholas Nassim to who made the point like why exactly are those who are most in favor of gun rights also those who are most opposed to like drug legalization and vice versa right there's no philosophical consistency there whatsoever you would think that those two would be like one side would be in favor of prohibition or regulation and the other side would be in favor of more of a i guess a libertarian approach but instead when you're kind of pulled between the two but you feel like you got to fit yourself into one or the other you come to some I guess, yeah, you squish yourself in, like you're saying, you squish yourself into to positions that, that really don't make sense. Sure. It's almost the exact same concept, the, the war on drugs versus the war on guns. I mean, it's the idea that if, if someone is simply holding an object and causing no harm to anyone else, well, they shouldn't be attacked. They shouldn't be jailed. They shouldn't be considered criminals for that. There's a slight difference in the fact that guns are for self-defense specifically. But even in the drug war, I mean, many people use marijuana for defense of their own body to heal themselves. I mean, so even drugs fall into a category of self-preservation for many people. So Yeah, or I mean, a lot of people just like going to gun ranges and shooting guns for fun. And I mean, I'm you know, not advocating drug use for sure. But at the same time, I don't think it's well, I think it's a complete disaster to try to prohibit it. And it would be a complete I mean, can you imagine them trying to prohibit guns in the United States? At least that's a pretty far left wing position. Some people out there seem to be advocating <laughs> just that right now. There's like 350 million guns in the United States and 75 million gun owners or something like that. It would be the yeah, it's it would be the war on drugs times I don't even want to imagine it. I mean, and what I find most interesting, and, and I don't take dogmatic positions on abortion, I think it's actually a very difficult libertarian issue, but <laughs> yeah, the same people that will kind of suggest banning guns altogether are the same people that will argue, well, you know, you can't ban abortions because people will just do it anyway. They'll do it in back alleys. And, you know, I just want to say, yeah, just like they will with guns and just like they yes. are, are with drugs. I mean, it's all the same essential concept, that even though they're arguing on, on different sides of it. I do think abortion moves into another realm, too, because the big question with abortion to me is, of course, is the fetus a human being? Does the fetus deserve the rights of a human being? And when does it deserve the rights of a human being? Because, I mean, of course, you make murder illegal. Then, of course, yes, some people will break right. that law. So and abortion- no one's going to say, well, yeah, I screw it. I mean, everyone's going to murder people anyway. So why even bother? <laughs> Yeah, so that's a little too libertarian for me. <laughs> no, uh, so I think abortion is a bit more complicated in that respect. And uh, I mean, with regards to abortion, I think that it's just the, the rhetoric on both sides seems to just make it sound like such a simple issue when it trying to come to the determination when the fetus is a human being, what rights does the fetus have, what right does the mother have, is not an easy thing to and, and should come up with some nuance, but yet it's just so... Sure. Even in the abortion debate, there's sort of a false paradigm. You either have to be pro-life, which sounds like a good thing in general. I mean, who isn't pro for life or you're pro-choice? Well, well, geez, I kind of want to be 
for both those concepts in life. Like why it's even a more, a more complicated issue than just stuffing into suicides, even on that one issue. I hate those terms. I mean, it also, I find it funny that most pro-choice people seem to not be pro-choice when it comes to light bulbs, but uh, abortion, you know, whatever, (laughs) guns and and all sorts of other things. So, I mean, I think a lot of what I've written is just, is about kind of taking on meme culture, particularly on the left. I don't, the right is just as bad, but for some reason it doesn't bother me as much, probably because most satire is on the left, like, you know, Jon Stewart and, and whatnot. And the left seems to get away with this fuzzy thinking, these talking points or, you know, just yeah, a talking point instead of an argument or a talking point that replaces an argument or some factoid. And, uh, and a lot of the debates fall down to that. And like, I mean, going to abortion in more detail, I mean, it is true. Most people fall somewhere in the middle or like Walter Block's proposal. Basically, you know, the mother has no right to abort the fetus, but no obligation to take the term. And basically, abortion should be cut off when a fetus is viable. I mean, that's the very, which I think is about five and a half months. That's a very you know, interesting proposal that, that I think makes a lot of sense. Sure. And, and regardless of, I mean, there's criticisms of that that are valid. There's, you know, people that support yeah. that, that view. But either way, it doesn't fall into that neat little paradigm, that pro-life Absolutely. or pro-choice paradigm. And, and that's, I think, to have ideas like that, we need to reject all these paradigms, reject all these memes. And that's certainly something you, as you mentioned, set out to do with a lot of your writing. And one thing you've taken on recently is this concept of the 90% tax rate. And look, Andrew, <laughs> I, I don't usually get into the weeds on this stuff, uh, you know, on this yeah. show. I, I usually don't get drowned in graphs and charts and statistics, but uh, they've broken me. They've broken me. The means have broken me. They have a habit of doing that. <laughs> My friends, who I, many of which I otherwise respect very much, have, have broken me with this insistence that, wait, hey, we've had a 90% tax before on a certain segment of the population. It doesn't mean doom and gloom. It doesn't mean the end of the world. They point to the glorious 1950s as, uh, I guess, this wonderful time that we should think about because, hey, it had a 90% tax on a certain segment of the population, and uh, it was a great time. The economy was booming and everything worked out great. So why are people that are against a 90% tax, you know, all in a huff about it? And to me, I'm against a 90% tax on anyone because not for any reason that I have to think about too hard because 90% is 90% and that's a lot of someone's income (laughs) to the point where it's, why would anyone even work if if that's the um, level that they're being taxed on? And that's as deeply as I usually think about it. But you've actually done a lot more research into this issue and a lot of people just aren't buying my argument apparently. So I need to dig a little deeper too. So why don't we just start actually, um, what is it about the 50? Why is everyone, both on the left and right, they're they're obsessed with this decade? The nostalgia from both the left and the right just baffles. I mean, there aren't a lot of issues or a lot of times where both the left and the right have nostalgia for. But the 50s, for very different reasons, they both seem to have some fondness for. I guess the 50s weren't the worst time ever. But the meme, this 91% tax is so simplistic, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's just like the first thing to go back is check. is Okay, well, how much was being collected? And it was no more than it's being collected now in percentage of GDP. It was, it was basically the same. I think it was actually generally slightly less. In fact, over the course of the last, I think, 60, 70 years, the United States has collected between 17 and 20 percent of GDP in taxes, the federal government, every single year. And in income taxes, it's between 7 and 9 percent every single year. So it's like, well if this 91% tax was actually having an effect, then you would suspect that would be higher. And that's no matter what the tax rates, we end up with the same amount of collection. Is that basically the idea? Yeah, it's something called Hauser's Law. And and while I think, I don't think it's a law per se, because I do think the federal government could find a way to expropriate 
as much as they wanted. I mean, at some point there'll be some major resistance, but they could find a way to take more. I'm pretty confident. But that is the history. That is what has happened. You know, a liberal might, you know, come back at you and say, well, yeah, but the higher, the 1%, the 10%, top whatever percent was being taxed at a higher rate. And that's why it was the same, but the upper percentages of the economy or the upper, the richest people were paying the most. But that's actually the reverse. Over time, people, the richest have been paying more and more as a larger and larger percentage. I think uh, it went from the top 20%, I think went from paying something like 50, just over 50% uh, in the 1980s to closer to 70% today. So it's just a very simplistic way to look at it. And the reason is the tax code is, has changed so many times. It's so many things are different. I mean, at one time in the 1950s, we had 24 tax brackets, 24. Wow. I mean, that's just madness. I mean, there's no, it's not left or right. That's just madness. And then it went down to two. And now I think it's at seven. And so it's, it's been all over the place. And they radically changed the tax code in 1986. You know, I'm a real estate investor by profession. And a lot of this comes down, like real estate was very affected by this 1986 tax change law. For one thing, it used to be that anybody could invest in real estate and count any losses they had on that real estate against their income. And the thing is about it is real estate depreciates, you know, in air quotes, depreciates every year. Uh, the land does it, but the building does. Over 27 and a half years, a building will be considered losing all of its value. Is that just due to the amount of money people have to put into them to, I guess, maintain the buildings in theory, even though we, we know the building isn't really going to a value of zero? Right? Yeah, well, think about it in terms of a car. So you have a car from 1970, unless you really kept it up or refurbished it. I mean, it's going to lose all of its value. You have a computer. I mean, computers depreciate extremely quickly. A computer from a couple of years ago is worth basically nothing. I mean, just go to some uh, thrift store and look at the TVs that they're selling you know, from 10 years ago that are worth five bucks, maybe. And, and you're getting ripped off to buy that for $5 too. And those things depreciate in value to virtually nothing, but housing is nothing like that. Because one, it cash flows, you rent it out and you're being paid an income. The whole idea is to make a positive cash flow on it. But also that cash flow, that rental income allows you to maintain the property, to upgrade it, to keep it up. And so there are properties from, you know, we own properties that are over 100 years old that are maybe not as good a shape as they were. They're well, actually better because they have better amenities, you know, vinyl siding now or vinyl windows or things like that. So they're actually in better condition in many ways if, if they've been kept up well. The value of those properties has increased over time. They've appreciated. But the IRS code assumes that they depreciate down to zero. So every year you lose whatever one twenty-seventh and a half of the value that, or what you bought that property for. It says you lost it, uh, not the land, but the property itself. They split it up. Sounds like it was a good time to be a real estate investor, I guess. Well, you can still do that as an active real estate investor. Okay, if but, that but is before almost anybody could do that. Yeah. So like doctors and lawyers and all these high earning individuals would just buy up real estate or they would get in these large syndications that were really big in the 80s. It kind of led to the, the savings and loans crisis, but we won't get into that either. But they would buy up all this real estate, no interest in making money off of it. They were fine losing money off of it. But because if, let's say they lost a little bit on the operating side. So the property, they rented it out, but they didn't make a positive income on it. So they lost money each year on that side. Plus they had the depreciation. So they had all of that and that counted against their income. And so they might've been making $100,000 a year, but if they had you know $40,000 in depreciated losses on these properties, well, they were only paying income taxes on 60,000. 
So this is how people were generally getting out of paying 90% tax. Why would anybody pay that tax rate if they can just invest in some properties? And, you know, worst case, they didn't pay them in taxes, at least. And and now they own properties. <laughs> so it sounds like a win-win. Or like corporate tax, rate, tax rates have never been that high. So if somebody had money in a corporation and they owned a corporation or they had stock or something like that, they would just keep it in the corporation and they would uh, account for their income there and not on their personal tax return. Or there are all sorts of havens and loopholes. I mean, the number of loopholes from 1986 that I mean, I've even heard basically that people would just brag about cheating their taxes back then. It <laughs> like was almost was just, just, it was a known part of the system. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, everybody did. That's just how it went. I mean, no one would brag about doing that today. I mean, you'd be clinically insane to try to literally brag to people that you're cheating on your taxes. You'll Especially be, not on their libertarian podcast. Oh, not that yes, well, yes, never mind. Yes, Moving yes. along. <laughs> we, we pay all our taxes. <laughs> What bothers me about it is it's very easily checkable. I mean, also, 91% sounds like a rich person's got to pay 91% of their income. But the very first thing to look at is when does that start? And inflation adjusted, that didn't start until I think they were making what would be over $3 million today. Right. Can you just explain the differences? And frankly, until the last few years, I really started learning more about my own taxes. I didn't even understand the difference myself. So the distinction of marginal tax rate, where it's it's not necessarily that all of income is taxed at certain rates. It's based on, well, you can explain. You're the better better explainer on this. I mean, let's just make up some tax rates. Let's just say there's one 20% tax rate and I make $50,000, but it's a marginal tax rate that doesn't come in until you make $40,000. So basically you pay a 0% tax up to $40,000. And then you pay a marginal 20% tax on the remainder. So you're paying 20% of just that 10,000, which is 2,000. So your marginal tax rate is 20% in this case, but your real tax rate, your effective tax rate is only 4%, 2,000 divided by 50,000. And so most of the, I mean, how many people make over three and a half million dollars a year? It's a very, very, very small percentage. You don't need to be anywhere near that to be in the top 1%. So uh, people weren't paying anywhere. Very, very few people were paying over that 91% level. It's just... It was just sort of a, I don't even know why they went up that high. It didn't even make sense. It's like, no one's paying this. Why have it this way? Why have 24 tax brackets? And so tax reform certainly made sense. I think, you know, obviously. (laughs) Maybe it was just a long-term conspiracy to know that eventually people could point back to the 50s and say, look, they had a 91% tax. Everything was fine. (laughs) Yes, it was a conspiracy. I think we'll go with that angle. It's definitely a conspiracy. So (laughs) at at the end of the day, what was the end result of the 90% tax at that time? Because you would think, well, I mean, there's at least getting more revenue in, but it, it sounds like they weren't even paying that much. So at the end of the day, was there even more revenue going into the government from when at the time when there was a 90% tax institute? No, there was about the same. Actually, it's actually during the 50s, slightly less, not an, an amount less, percent. less. This is percentage of GDP. Right. Slightly less, generally speaking, but basically the same. I think last year, or it was 2013 or 2014, the federal income tax brought in 8.1% of GDP. And it's been between 7 and 9. And I think generally in the 50s, it was closer to 7 but it's always been about the same. So they didn't bring in any more income and the rich weren't really paying a higher percentage of theirs or if they were, it was a very small addition to that. The tax code has changed a ton, but the effect on basically the people who's paying what has changed very limited amount. And so it's pretty, well, I guess we'd say extraordinarily simplistic to point this 91% tax rate as meaning anything. It really meant nothing. So what do you believe the results of 
a 90% tax would be if instituted today on the quote unquote 1%. Like a real 90% yeah, tax? I mean, under the current, let's say the current system that we have, if we just adjusted that top tax rate and made one, especially for the 1% and slapped 90% on it, what kind of effects could we expect to see? I think we'd see a flight of capital. I think they, the rich would generally well, They probably would flee. tax that too, I, I'm imagining. Well, then, <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, I guess if they became a complete state and made it so people couldn't leave the country, you know, rich people couldn't leave the country or move their monies offshore or anything like that. It would bring production down substantially. I mean, is the IRS going to bust down, say, Donald Trump's door to get to collect his 90 percent? I mean, I, I don't know how. I don't know how far they want to go in that respect, because the higher you tax, the higher incentive you create for someone either to not produce, produce less or to move. You know, there are a lot of very rich people running companies that don't need to work and don't need to do anything. They could just call it a day. And if you're going to tax everything that they make or virtually everything they make, you've pretty much made their mind up for them. That's the thing to me. If I'm a, um, a evil, greedy capitalist who's made a lot of money and is- We're libertarian, so that would be a good so, app description. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, if I, if I was had very wealthy and, and had a, a business that was producing a ton of income, but I had already made, you know, tens of millions of dollars, clearly if I want, I can just go live on an island. And suddenly the government comes in and says, hey, uh, we're taxing everything you earn at 90%. I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to stop earning. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. stop earning anything. I'm going to go live on that island and I'm done. Goodbye. My business is closing. And, you know, I'm just going to stop doing anything because why should I? Yeah. Well, one of the things that bothers me about the way the left has approached, say, all these issues with income inequality and whatnot is going after like the tax side of it versus going after trying to you know tax production, reduce the incentives for economic activity and, and innovation and all the rest of that stuff instead of taking on corporate welfare more so and taking on that side of it, which is where I think, well, I think everyone is philosophically opposed to corporate welfare, but that's where the left and libertarians could certainly join forces and have an alliance. Sure, because I think in many ways what you're addressing there is, I mean, it's something that a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters, maybe Bernie Sanders himself, is they're sort of speaking to a symptom and they're not necessarily wrong about the symptom. They're maybe just wrong about the root cause because to me there is a lot of, you know, unjust, I'm not really opposed, and we could talk about this in a second, the concept of wealth inequality, I think, is very skewed as it is, you know, stands today. But mm -hmm. I mean, there is some level of unjust wealth. And that comes from crony capitalism. It comes from when the government favors already wealthy corporations in certain ways. It comes from, you know, the rich, essentially, many rich people essentially buying aspects of the government yeah. and crafting regulations to benefit them. So it's not like there is no truth to the fact that there is injustice uh, economically in the world. It's just that oh, it's mainly... Sure. Being, the methods being presented to sort of rectify that aren't really addressing the root causes. They're instead just punishing everybody, including people who might earn their wealth completely legitimately. Yeah. And I mean, you're also just, you know, taxing is going to reduce the incentives to produce, but corporate welfare generally locks companies in. They reduces how dynamic they are. I mean, just look at like, you know, the military industrial complex. I mean, they have been showered with money over and over and over again. And just like these late projects like the F-22 and the F-35, I think the F-22, they spent like $400 billion and the plane can't fly in the rain or something like that. And and the F-35 lost in a dogfight with the, the plane it was replacing. And so that was another like $400 billion boondog. I mean, these companies, they get locked in. This is like welfare. You can create dependency among poor people. And welfare also you know, produces dependency amongst rich people too, you know, has the same general effect. And so corporate welfare and things of that nature generally are going to reduce how dynamic and innovative the economy is 
They're going to lock it into old ways of doing things that aren't as productive as new possibilities. Whereas high taxes is going to it basically it's two ways to approach the same problem, but one is going to basically you know reduce the size of the economy, reduce growth, reduce incentives to to create, and the other is. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems extremely obvious to me. Also, you're targeting the wrong people. If you're targeting corporate welfare, you're targeting the cronyism. If you're targeting taxes, you're just you're just hitting everyone with it. So, you know, those who have earned it legitimately and those who have not. And generally speaking, those who have not have done so through political means, and they're going to have the easiest time dodging those tax increases. So it just seems to me that it's the wrong approach. Going after cronyism and corporate welfare is the best. Even if this 90% tax was instituted, you know it would come with all sorts of loopholes, even if they say it doesn't, that would make a certain group of people you know, not have to pay them. There's just no doubt about it. Or it wouldn't pass because there's no way that lawmakers yeah. are going to punish their biggest donors unless they you know, factor something in there that protects them. And stuff. Yeah. And those closest to the spigot are going to find ways to mitigate those taxes or, or earn off them. I mean, a lot of regulation is done at the behest of large companies because it's easier for them to absorb those costs where their smaller competitors don't have the economies of scale. And so it, it's even got a term for it. It's called overhead smash, where uh, basically uh, regulatory burdens fall much harder on smaller companies. And so the, and I'm sure the taxes have similar effect. I mean, GE, I think, didn't they pay nothing in taxes because they bought like a bunch of like tax credits for green energy and we're getting all these subsidies and stuff like that. So they're getting subsidies on the one side, they're, they're buying tax credits, not paying any taxes. They'll find ways to do that. Smaller companies probably won't. So it's, of course, the bigger the government you make, the more incentive you create for people and businesses to go to that government to get the benefits instead of trying to get in the free market. You mean I can't avoid taxes by buying uh, green energy credits on my own? <laughs> I can't pull that same trick too? <laughs> probably not. I'm sure they bought plenty of other tax credits and whatnot, but... No, uh, unfortunately, unless you can afford some high-priced attorneys that can figure out ways to get around every tax and whatnot, you're probably going to be stuck paying them. Not on a podcaster's income, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of a podcaster's income, Andrew, I just need to take a second out to tell my fans a little bit more about our great sponsors over at Health Excellence Select. Because as someone who purchases my own health insurance, I had become extremely frustrated at my escalating premiums and deductibles. After the implementation of Obamacare, and this forced me to seek an alternative, and I found that alternative in the concept of health sharing, where groups of like-minded individuals get together to voluntarily cover each other's medical costs. Health Excellence Select will help you take charge of your health care without having to deal with all the costs and hassle of handling paperwork and spending hours on the phone with bureaucrats just trying to get paid. They will handle all the dirty work for you while also providing tons of valuable tools to help you stay healthy. Listeners of this program can get the VIP treatment and get signed up directly by my great representative, Jeff Cantor. Give him a call at 440-283-6849. Tell him Mark from Lions of Liberty sent you. Until then, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health for more information. And so one thing I just want to address, too, is, is this overall, because like you said, this call for the 90% tax, this call for all these social programs, this call for $15 an hour minimum wage, all these things are really um, a result of perceived inequality or perceived unjust inequality. And as you said, there is some level of of truth to the injustice in our economy. We just yeah, believe it's, it's a bit misplaced. But what about this concept of wealth inequality overall? And this is something you've written about in the past. I mean, is there any truth to this idea that wealth inequality is even a real issue or even a real problem? How do you view that? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with 
liberals have a very egalitarian sense of how things should be. And so they want it to be very small. I don't think pointing to what percentage it should be is, is sort of a challenge. I mean, libertarians, is, it's, it should be what it, it, it is if, if there's you know free society. And there's obviously a lot of cronyism that skews that. But even still, I'm not one of these doomsayers that thinks that we're heading off a cliff or anything like that. Like there was this video that came out where they're showing like what people actually wanted wealth inequality to be versus what it is, and and it, you know the top twenty percent owns like eighty five plus percent of the wealth in the country, and people wanted it to be more like thirty some percent. Although they only gave them two options, and the options were the United States current wealth inequality versus Sweden's income inequality. And so Sweden's wealth inequality is actually relatively close to what the United States' wealth inequality is. I think the United States is like the top 20% own just shy of 90% in, in Sweden. It's closer to 80, but it's, it's relatively close. What a drastically different system. Though. Yes, yes, yeah, drastically, incredibly different. We're, we're completely laissez-faire free market capitalism and because our socialist. government spends 45% of GDP and they are a socialist paradise because their government spends... 52% or something like that. But uh, the big problem when looking at it that way is no one factors in for age. So they're basically comparing you know, an 18-year-old who just graduated from high school and was working at McDonald's with a 45-year-old attorney at the top of their earning power. And that comparison is absolute nonsense, both in terms of income, but especially in terms of wealth. I mean, just think of anyone you know's life who's relatively older. They were like, when I graduated high school or when I graduated college, my wealth was negative. I had student loans and, and my income was pretty small and it's grown, you know, throughout time. You know, I, my father was basically had next to nothing at 35 and then he built a, a strong company after that. And, and now he has a good amount of wealth, but you just compare the wealth inequality of his own life, you know, one decade at a time, there's a substantial wealth inequality for him over time. Currently in the United States, I think this was from Pew, I, I don't remember exactly, but people under the age of 45 own 11% of the wealth in this country. That's it. People over 45 own wow. just shut in 89%. Now so that's the real income gap. Yeah, that's the map. And over time, one of the things, and I'm one of the that's things crazy. that's happened. Yeah, I've never heard that, that. Yeah, one of the things that's happened over time is Older people have gotten wealthier and younger people have gotten poorer. I think a lot of this has to do with more people going to college, more people incurring student loan debt, which is another topic in and of itself. Sure. And, and that hinders the ability of people to really succeed economically when they start off so burdened with this debt. And then they find that they can't, they don't receive this job that they were, I guess, promised yes. or, or told they would be assuredly get when they got this, whatever degree they spent, you know, six figures on. And then suddenly they're in this quagmire where they have to take low paying jobs or can't find any job and have a debt they can't pay. Absolutely. I, although even if you're completely in favor of the current system, just statistically, it's going to have that effect. It's going to be, yes, you're going to start off with these student loans. So you're going to start off with basically negative wealth, but you're going to have, let's go with the theory, you're going to have a higher earning power. So over time, you will earn more, which means later in life, you will have a larger income and a larger wealth than you would have had otherwise. But because you started off with, first, you entered the workforce four or five, whatever years later in life, and second, you start off with a debt, then this is going to skew wealth inequality towards older people or skew wealth towards older people and away from younger people. And when you look at that, I mean, absurdity of it is that survey that was done and that video that was made that had like some 10 million YouTube hits is if you had everyone earning the exact same income 
and saving the exact same amount and getting the exact same return on it. Over time, if you just split it up like the, but everyone got a raise every decade, there would be basically more inequality in that society than what people thought they wanted, than the, what they chose for you know, Sweden's income inequality, the choice that they made, which means to me that it's extraordinarily obvious no one was thinking about that in terms of age. So people look at these, these memes and, and think about in terms of the abstract numbers, but then take it down to real life. And just point out these, I think, pretty obvious things that nobody talks about. <laughs> and it's like, oh, oh, yeah, that doesn't actually relate to anything. Like the data set I'd really like to see is, and I'd like to maybe write an article in the future about is, is what was the wealth inequality or an income inequality in particular age groups over time? So what was the wealth and income inequality for people in their 30s in, the two, in this decade and then last decade and the decade before that and people in their 40s? And, and how has that changed? And I suspect basically what's happened is, I mean, from the data that I, I have seen, that the older people have gotten richer and younger people have gotten poorer, that it's increased. But over time, for people in those age brackets, I suspect it's much more, best word, maybe tolerable. Or it would be, it would, be much, it would induce a lot less outrage if people saw this is the wealth and income inequality for people in their 30s. So if you want to address inequality in this country, you got to look at grandma and grandpa. <laughs> yes, much. yes. And it's funny that like, most of the uh, you know young people are paying more taxes for you know, payroll taxes. And the elderly are generally taking out Social Security, Medicare and whatnot. And it's sort of basically the poorest people in society are paying the richest people in society in that way, the way those systems are set up. <laughs> now, of course, there are plenty of elderly people who are not wealthy. I'm not saying they all are just in general, if you take the aggregate statistics, older people are wealthier, as you would assume is pretty obvious. But uh, somehow the inequality discussions never bring that into the fold. And it's always gets left on the sideline, which is endlessly frustrating because I don't think you can come to any sort of reasonable or realistic conclusion on what, what the situation is unless you take age into account. And there's other factors, too. I mean, but that one by itself, I mean, just like when going through quintiles, there are 30 million more people in the top 20% than there are in the bottom 20%. And a lot of people in the bottom 20% aren't working. They're on welfare, or social security, disability insurance, or something like that, or just out of the labor force. And it's like, well, how can income go up for people who aren't in the labor force? <laughs> so, it's odd to include people that have, for whatever reason, many mm-hmm. perhaps with no fault of their own, have essentially been removed from the labor force when talking about these issues. Yeah, and so uh, particularly with regards to wealth, and, and and I think when you look at welfare dependency and things like that, that can negatively affect that as well. If somebody stays out of the labor force for many, many years and then tries to jump back in, well, they're starting way, way back. Um, they first of all, I mean, you got to jump back in and learn, you know, discipline, getting to work on time, and and putting up with some things you probably don't want to put up with, and and or just gaining skills. So that kind of thing is going to increase that problem too, particularly on the bottom. So there are a lot of other factors that need to be taken into account when discussing inequality, but just the basics, like just the absolute base necessity is you need to look at age. And Thomas Sowell was the one who originally pointed this out to me, or not directly, but I read him pointing this out. And he's pretty much the only one I've seen ever really make this argument consistently I mean, there was a Michigan study, a study from the University of Michigan. I think it looked at the, uh, this was regarding income. People in the bottom 20% in 1975, and then looked at them again in 1991. And I think 80, 
or 90% of them had moved out of that and like a substantial number. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it was 20 some percent were in the top quintile. And that was over 16 years. I, I haven't seen a more recent study, but it's just, these are not fixed groups. People are not fixed in these quintiles. Uh, they're flesh and blood human beings and life events sure, change. Your tax rate is, is not tied to your DNA. No, no, you're not just stuck. And while there's certainly all sorts of issues and problems, mostly government-induced, that do hinder people's ability to move up the ladder, we're not so far gone that it's not there anymore. There still is, is certainly, people generally still move up the ladder as they go throughout, and they, they make a lot more money, both income, wealth, all the rest of it, as they get older. Yeah, and in that case, it's important to identify the actual things that are holding people back, whether it's government licensing, the, the cartelization of many industries. I mean, there are so many things we can point to uh, yes, for reasons I, that legitimate reasons that people cannot succeed in the world. But uh, it, it's also important when we look at the solutions that we don't ignore the root causes. And I think just say, calling for, say, a 90 percent tax on everyone be, due as a result of some injustice perceived or real is not really making any attempt to actually examine the root of you know as far as like actual solutions i'm almost just settle for like coherent arguments just get the basics down like i mean just like a complete tangent with regards to like our current foreign policy like we could just have a coherent one i don't need a good one just a coherent one like if we can not bomb isis and fund isis at the same time you know pick one or the other maybe i mean i don't it doesn't even need to be good just right now just just coherence i think i would settle for versus actually finding correct solutions like you know reducing the uh these licensure laws that make you like get a license to sell you know fruit baskets or that was that was a one but uh, there was one i think it was just become like a yeah, it was something like that. It, there was, I just re- recent story where you need sure, a license. Kids can't even sell, start, yeah. a, start a lemonade stand. Oh, nowadays. God, where they get arrested by the police if eight-year-old. That, that was pri- my primary source of income till I was eight years old. So. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just too dangerous for the public health for little Jimmy and Jane to be selling you know, lemonade on the street corner without getting you know, publicly inspected and whatnot by the FDA or whatever. It's just, it's just it's far too dangerous course. Well, Andrew, I appreciate you taking the time today to uh, you know break down, I guess, this this specific issue, even though we touched on many things, as I like to do here, because it's important to, I guess, uh, try to get through the fog when we're talking about this political stuff and at least try to get to the core issues. And I hope that that's something we could do through our conversation, through analyzing this sort of call for a 90% tax that we just hear so much in meme form, but we don't hear as much talked about uh, the reality of. So I do thank you for joining me for that today, Andrew. Before I let you go, is uh, there anything else you'd like to plug or uh, just let people know how they they can contact you, how they can find your writing or your books or anything else you'd like to uh, toss out there. Uh, yeah, thank you. I mean, for the most part, most of my writing is done either my political writing is generally on Mises.org. And when I'm writing about business and real estate, it's generally on bigger pockets. So you can find me in both of those places. I don't have too much of a Twitter or Facebook presence. Uh, they seem to be too loaded up with these memes that tend to drive me crazy. So maybe someday I'll get on those. But for the most part, Mises and uh, bigger pockets is the best place to find me. All right, Andrew Sirios, thank you so much once again. And uh, thanks for roaring with me, metaphorically at least. (laughs) Metaphorically, absolutely. Thank you, Mark. Take care, Andrew. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my discussion there with Mr. Andrew Sirios. 
We had a good time having a good conversation, as I always try to do here, taking things wherever they go. And I was enjoying sort of getting into the weeds a little bit on some of the stuff that we don't usually do here. Usually when I have my guests on, I like to get into the philosophical weeds on things. And uh, I kind of leave a lot of the um, the meme destruction, I guess, alone. But, you know, I guess something just came over me the last month or so. Seeing so many of these memes, people telling me, good friends of mine telling me, hey, we used to have a 90% tax. Everything was great. What's the big deal? The world's not going to come to an end. And yeah, maybe the world might not come to an end. But an actually implemented 90% tax would certainly grind a lot of economic activity to an end. And a lot of this stuff is based on the concept of income inequality. Certainly, there's a good level of unjust income inequality in the world, but we really do need to focus on justice. And when we compare income inequality across the board and we compare it over the years, I mean, people are getting less poor overall, even the poorest of us are. And I think that can just be multiplied exponentially if we actually freed the economy. I mean, this is in a fascist, highly controlled, in many ways, highly regulated, crony capitalist economy. If we really freed up humanity to create their own wealth, if we break up the cartels that control so many industries in this country, most notably healthcare, then people would be able to, you know, just create even more wealth than many of us could even imagine. But we don't live in anything close to that society. But a lot of the solutions being proposed are really just going to take us even further into despair, into disparity. And, you know, someone like Bernie Sanders, I think, is a really honest guy and, and proposes a lot of solutions that we should expect to see when we have so many self-styled capitalists promoting such corporatism in the name of capitalism. Yeah, and the response to that is going to be socialist ideas of evening the playing field. That's why we need another voice out there. That's why I do this show, to bring a little sanity to this discussion. Because the options should not be fascism or democratic socialism. <laughs> There's another way to do things, guys. We can actually have a little freedom and see that prosperity that everyone wants. At least anyone reasonable should want for everybody. Guys, if you enjoy this program, if you enjoy conversations like the one I had today with Andrew Sirios and all the coverage we give to all the debates, yes, we watch every single debate and give you a reaction show. We do special shows like Rand Pluses and Minuses. We have Felony Friday every single Friday. Then next week, we will be returning once again to that debate coverage. We'll be analyzing the latest Republican debate, the last one taking place before the New Hampshire primary. In the meantime, if you do enjoy all this programming we put out there for you, there are several ways you can help us. And the first one is just simply by telling a friend, whether it's by posting it on your Facebook wall, tweeting it out to people, emailing it to your mom or dad, bringing it up at the dinner table, whatever. You guys are, for the most part, our marketing team. You are the marketing budget. So if you love this show, help us spread it in any way you can. You can also help us by going over to iTunes, going over to Stitcher, hitting that subscribe button, no matter how you listen to the show and leaving us a five-star rating and a great review. That'll really help get this show in more of those earbuds out there and help expand this conversation. Help us expand what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty. And come join the conversation with us. Find us over on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. And if you really want to get in depth with us, join the conversation, communicate with myself, many of my other Lions of Liberty cohorts, several of my past guests even, then come on over to the Lions of Liberty Forum. That's our private Facebook group. You can just type Lions of Liberty Forum into your Facebook search bar and you should get right over there. And we certainly hope to hear from you guys. Until next time, until this Friday, live long and live free.